The talk this evening is about the river of change. The river of change. When I was in my 20s, I was really inspired. Now, should I start over? So this is about the river of change. When I was in my 20s, I was really inspired by Uh, one of the first kind of Dharma storybooks that I read, and that was a book by Hermann Hesse, Siddhartha. And the part about the river is what stood out to me and what stayed with me for a long, long time. How many of you have read Siddhartha? Practically every single one of you. That's your next book. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The part about the river really stood out to me and it really opened my heart um, to the understanding of impermanence. I started to realize, even at that time when I was young, just how on and on and on and on and on it goes. And where did it all come from? And how much longer will it last? You know, I mean, now a lot of us are in our 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And it's like, when will we ever get that? Have we had enough? Have we opened opened enough to really understand impermanence? So it was about listening deeply to that river to that always changing, always moving river in my life. Seeing children and my own children being born and then going through their ages and paces and wondering how it would be for them. Where did they come from? How will it be when they get older? Just opening to this as seeing their river of life seeing everyone's river of life as I opened to this more and more on an everyday basis. So this beginningless and endless flowing on of life, this river of change, it started to really strike me when I was uh, very young. And so when I visited Bagan, a couple, three years ago, that ancient city in Myanmar, Burma, where there there are a lot of stupas and memorials to the Buddha and the Buddha's disciples, beautiful shrines, very ancient, very old, a thousand or more years old there. So when I went there to visit for the first and only time I'd been there, the Irrawaddy River uh, flows by, and we stayed in a little place right next to the river, my girlfriend and I, after we attended a month-long retreat. And so we, we visited the temples and the shrines there, and I saw so many people bowing, you know, that's the, that's the thing you do, you bow a lot, and there's a certain way you bow, and you, you take refuge in the Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha every time you bow. So I thought, gee, how many people from time immemorial, from even before that time, they say in uh, 
a kind of a story-like way that that was a place for shrines and temples from even before that thousand-year period. So how many people have bowed there, have taken refuge there, and their families, and it goes on and on. You just could see the river of life flowing, just being there in that ancient place. The beginningless, endless flowing on of the rivers of life. The Buddha said that there is no discoverable beginning. There is no end. It's just this changing nature at every level. And so, uh, as I was looking up in the suttas about anicca, or change, I came across these various analogies that the Buddha gave about it. And just reading it, it inculcated in me even an even greater appreciation and depth of, like, we can't imagine. It's unimaginable how long this change has been going on. So one time, a Brahmin uh, asked the Buddha, how many eons have elapsed and gone by, you know, in in this kind of cycle of birth and death, birth and death um, of all human beings. And the Buddha answered in this way, that the Brahmin said, is it possible to give a simile, Master Gotama? And the Blessed One said, it is possible, Brahmin. Suppose, Brahman, the grains of sand between the point where the river Ganges originates and the point where it enters the great ocean. Suppose you consider these grains of sand. It is not easy to count these and say that there are so many grains of sand or so many hundreds of grains or so many thousands of grains or so many hundreds of thousands of grains, Brahman. The eons that have elapsed and gone by are even more numerous than that. Now an eon, one eon is hundreds of thousands of years. That's one eon. So he says that it's not easy to count them and say that so many eons, hundreds of eons, thousands of eons, Hundreds of thousands of eons have gone by. For what reason? Because, Brahman, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. It is enough to be liberated from them. You know, so this understanding of Nietzsche is bringing to me like, when will this ever end? How can I open to something that will help me to really be liberated? And so, he goes on to say, um, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering, uh, uh, roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. Whenever you see anyone in misfortune, in misery, you can conclude we too have experienced the same thing in this long, long course. For what reason? Because, bhikkhus, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. It's without discoverable end. It is enough to be liberated from them. And he says the same thing about happiness. Uh, 
we too have experienced the same thing in this long course. And in another section, there, there are about 10 stories like this. I'm just going to read one more. And uh, he says, A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. What do you think, bhikkhus, which is more, the stream of tears that you have shed as you roamed and wandered on through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, this or the water in the four great oceans? And the bhikkhus answered, As we understand it, the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, the stream of tears that we have shed as we roamed and wandered through this great course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable, separated from the agreeable, this alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. So it just gives you a sense of how long this kind of impermanence, this change has been going on and how long we in ignorance uh, have been wandering through it. The fluctuations of just one life that we see in ourselves or in our children and in the ones around us, the birth, the stages of infancy and childhood, going through adulthood, then aging and sickness and health, dying and death, and all the happiness and sorrow, the gain and loss, the praise and blame, all the ups and downs of life, on and on that we've seen. This is our river of life. We've seen that. And then how much more if we can open our hearts and our understanding to whether there's been a past in other lives or future, that this will continue on and on. When I was in my 20s, the end of the river looked very far away, of course. You know, it was, oh, I had all the time in the world and I was pretty much, you know, in charge of everything. I thought, of course, that I could control things the way I wanted them to be. And now that I'm in my 60s and I've lived most of my life, and maybe there's 20, 30 years left more for me, Death is closer, of course. The fact of death is a really poignant reflection to me every, every day. I, never, I frequently reflect on, I never know when it's going to happen. And it's not a grim reflection for me. It's really a reflection for me that wakes me up, that says, your life is precious. Make your life count whatever you're doing today, in these next hours, these next moments, what you're planning on. Do the best you can to make your life really matter. There's much more urgency to live wisely, to live skillfully. And I'm not saying anything that's new to you all. You know it in your own ways. But all during this time, It's keeping the truth of impermanence in the forefront, not losing that understanding, not feeling like I'm overwhelmed by it, 
but understanding that it's really, um, it really gives me a, a feeling of empowerment to live my life differently and to really use my life to open to not just helping others and having a good life, but of course to liberating the mind completely from greed and hatred and delusion. These words from Dilgo Kinse Rinpoche, a great Tibetan teacher, I've always loved hearing this when others read it or when I give this talk and I read it. He says, just as every single thing is always moving inexorably closer to its ultimate dissolution, so also your own life, like a burning butter lamp, will soon be consumed. It would be foolish to think that you can first finish all of your work and then retire to spend the later stages of life practicing the Dharma. Can you be certain that you'll live that long? Does death not strike the young as well as the old? No matter what you are doing, therefore, remember death and keep your mind focused on the Dharma. Powerful words. So the words and the reflection on impermanence is not to bring about fear. It's to bring about wisdom in our lives, in our hearts. The Pali word for impermanence is anicca. I think a lot of you have heard that so many times. And the subtleties of it include the, it's not just the change of seasons, but it's the arising, the becoming different, the disappearing, the never staying the same. In a bigger way, we see it as a flowing onness of life, all of life. It just keeps flowing like a beginningless, endless river. We see, of course, all the changes around us in the seasons and how for as long as we've lived, that's how many seasons have gone by, years of seasons. And even within one season, we see the change, the different flowers that come up, the different trees that bloom at certain times and uh, fall at certain times, just the beauty of it we often can get either entranced by the beauty or just jaded by it and not, not even see it anymore, kind of lost in our ignorance about it, not see more deeply, even if it, we've gone through it and we've seen it over and over and over again. Can we let a greater teaching, not just the beauty of how it all is in nature, but a greater teaching be open to us, or do we just let that greater teaching slide by us? Just as I was coming here, um, or back up a little bit, I left the hall uh, earlier in the day, and when I turned the corner, I saw a little fat little mouse, you know, going back and forth in the back there. Did Have you guys, is that a little mouse that is around here? Yeah, Mary called it jumping mouse. Oh, we saw a jumping mouse. <laughs> But um, so, and I was, you know, just, oh, so beautiful. You know, it's so fuzzy and fat. <laughs> that little mouse, you know, it's, um, wondered if, 
it was getting food <laughs> by all of you <laughs> somehow. Uh, anyway, then um, I was coming down the stairs and I saw the possum with them, the raccoon with the mouse. There's probably more of them going around. I don't know if it's that particular one. But it just was like, oh, Anicca. You know, that what it, whoever that mouse is or was had its life, and it was being walked around in the mouth of a raccoon now. Just Anicca. That's how, how things go. So... Yeah, I could get really wigged out by that, but the mind saw, of course, I was holding this impermanence talk in my hand, you know, but I said, oh, okay, <laughs> that's impermanence, and, and the someday that will be my own life somehow, being in the jaws of, of the Lord of Death, so to say. I came across this poem by Kenneth, Rexroth, and it's about this kind of change and how we can get, um, how we can let this change slide by us unconsciously. The seasons revolve and the years change with no assistance or supervision. The moon, without taking thought, moves in its cycle. Deep in the night, a pine cone falls. Our campfire dies out in the early mountains. But here we lie entranced by the starlit river, and moments that should each last forever slide unconsciously by us like water. So what I saw into that poem was how unconscious we can be to the deeper teachings that are being offered to us all the time. That we, we, we see it maybe as beauty or as horror, you know, the death, but we can't take it in as wisdom. We're chasing what's pleasant around. We don't see that it's impermanent. Something comes up that's unpleasant and also we don't see the, we get lost in th thinking this will last forever. We don't see that sometimes as impermanent. But we come to this practice to understand the nature of life more deeply. And that's what I suppose that all of you have come for, to really understand. It's not about just being calm um, and comfortable you know, in our sitting position and just experiencing whatever, the nature of life in some very easy way. I might rob Steve of his quote, but, uh, <laughs> but you can use it again, um, about comfort. Uh, <laughs> being comfortable is not worthy of your highest aspirations. You know, do we ever think of that when we're practicing? It's really worth going through the difficulties of our practice because we learn such deep things about it. We don't learn so much when we're just sitting in comfort. So to open to experience life in a way that liberates us from ignorance and delusion, 
this is what brings us to practice. Sometimes we have to understand that, we have to come to understand that before we're really willing to do that, to be willing to be liberated from ignorance, from delusion. We learn that to cling to what cannot last forever brings constant pain. I mean, this is when we think that things are permanent, the ignorance of thinking that things are permanent, that we reach out for something, something pleasant that we think is going to last forever. But over and over again, we lose it. We lose what we thought was going to be uh, a lasting happiness, whether it's through a relationship, something that we're eating, or some experience that we're having, a physical experience, or any other kind of a sensual experience, hearing something. And how many happinesses have gone by, and where are they now? They're gone. Have we learned from any of that yet? I mean, I'm asking myself that question too. Why does the mind keep going after something that seems to be going to provide me with a lasting happiness when I should know better? We constantly think that something's going to bring some lasting happiness. We keep looking for what is stable and changing and unchanging in this changing reality. This is the realm of change, of change that's more quickly happening than other realms. Uh, It's all around us, but there's a great amount of delusion and ignorance too, so we don't see it as clearly. We don't really take it in as a wisdom as much as we could even after many lifetimes of lessons, or if we just take the lessons from this lifetime, have we learned anything from those lessons that we can't hold anything? It slips, as someone said today, it slips through our fingers like water. The Buddhist teaching on Anicca and the profound experiential understanding of it experiential understanding, like in a moment-to-moment understanding, is something the Buddha pointed to was very highly important to open to us to other understandings, other wisdoms that free us from suffering. And this practice of vipassana is aimed towards that experiential understanding. Um, Steve last night spoke about dukkha the unsatisfactoriness of life, and how anicca, we learn how anicca can bring us there to see how things are unsatisfactory. For one reason, as Steve pointed out last night, it's because that things change. There's that viparinama dukkha, the dukkha of change. You can't hold on because things are changing all the time. That's why the practice of vipassana is so important. It's the one, it's that practice that leads to liberation because it opens to these uh, realities that we're living in, but we often can't see because of delusion, because of ignorance. 
Vipassana means seeing or understanding in profound ways, in profound ways. It is the various ways we are experiencing by bringing a bare attention to this body and to the facets of the mind, seeing the fluctuating nature of all of experience. Um, as I don't know if Steve brought up this word yet, but it's the pixelated view of it all. You know, not the conceptual view, not the understanding, which is also important that, you know, what happened to the suffering I was having a long time ago, and it's gone now, but somehow thinking about it, I still feel like I'm suffering from it. You know, we, we see it happened in the past, and it's happening again, and we see it over and over again because we remember it, but we see that change, but somehow we can't be liberated by it. But when we see it in the pixelated view, the very intimate view of how a moment comes up, a moment of that suffering, of that maybe unpleasantness comes up, or a moment of that aversion or attachment, and we see either the beginning, the change in the middle, or the end of it, or the whole thing, then it really gets deep in our minds and in our hearts. The wisdom starts to grow very deeply from those moment-to-moment experiences. They grow deeply from those moment-to-moment experiences. They're much more profound than the, the view on a conceptual level because we can't think about it. We can't form a sense of self around it. It's happening so quickly. And if we don't think about it or reflect about it so much, we just see it at that very deep level. It has a profound effect on the mind. It feeds, it fuels, it develops the wisdom factor of the mind. The incessant mind-boggling arising, morphing, dissolving, moving, transient nature that is seen when bare attention is brought to experience of the body and the various experiences of the mind, the pleasant, unpleasant, the perceptions, the intentions that come and go, knowing itself that comes and goes, the various mind states. This is anicca. It's really transforming. That's why we gear the attention over and over again to those places. And of course, you know, thinking and getting on the conceptual level happens, and we we pick up the content of it. And that's fine. There might be insights into anicca, insights into uh, dukkha, when we have these kind of picking up the content of our thoughts. But we ask you over and over again, you get the content, that's fine. You understand the insight, that's fine. And sometimes you, you pick up other content about your life and about what to do, how to do. It's okay to know that, of course. You don't have to you know, just bury it under a rug or, or make yourself wrong for having it. But if you keep thinking and thinking around it, it, it just keeps you on the conceptual level and it doesn't allow you to go deeper and to realize and know the moment-to-moment view of Anicca. 
it brings forth the fact of dukkha. Sometimes people experience dukkha in and of itself just by opening to the unsatisfactoriness of an experience. People, yogis, can realize it's not worth it running after pleasant experience all the time. Sure, when it's there, enjoy it. But also that enjoyment is is anicca, is impermanent. The object is anicca, the enjoyment of it is anicca. And it, it won't last forever. We see that over and over again, ultimately, there's no lasting satisfaction. It doesn't mean, again, that we can't enjoy it while it's there, just to understand it's not lasting. When we don't understand this deeply, or to to any degree, it's why we have so much difficulty when someone passes away. When someone is lost from our life because of death or because of parting, it, we grieve so much, you know, it sort of can go on and on because we haven't really understood this impermanence deep, as deeply as we could have. Of course, we still grieve when we understand uh, impermanence, but it's not, it's not so wrenching. It doesn't stop our lives. We see that any person, situation, condition, any experience in our life goes away. One of the descriptions of dukkha or suffering is the oppression by the incessant origination and dissolution of every moment, of every person of every situation, of every condition that comes together. It's the oppression by the incessant origination and dissolution of all that is. So dukkha is very connected to anicca, to impermanence. The Buddha said to his son Rahula, Rahula, Develop meditation on the perception of impermanence. For when you develop the perception on impermanence, the conceit, I am, will be abandoned. The conceit, I am, will be abandoned. The kind of conceit meaning, I'm just going to put it in simple terms, how we get identified with anything that happens to us in our lives, just kind of on a conditional, situational level, how we can get identified with possessions that we have, that this belongs to me, or we can get identified with uh, experiences that we have, happiness or joy or aversion or attachment. I am this. I am this happiness. I am this joy. I am this attachment. We come to see that everything, even what makes up what we call a sense of self, and we'll talk about anatta more fully another day, this not-self characteristic is anatta. Even this sense of self that is made up of um, different aggregates of, for example, sensations in the body or form, perception, 
the feeling of feelings of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral consciousness or no, the knowing factor uh, intentions which form formations of conditions in our life when the mind or ignorance gets caught up in these identified with any one of these or any one of them coming any of a combination of them coming together it's a lot of suffering because we think that one of them is me mine who i am any combination of them is me mine or who i am but when they are seen in and of themselves on a rising of a sensation in the body and seeing how really evanescent it is, how coreless it is, how it's dissolving. And we see that is so also with just a perception that comes, a perception of a form, uh, seeing a tree or a pleasant or unpleasant feeling. Everything that arises, even knowing, comes and goes and we can't find anything solid in any one of those experiences or in any combination of those experiences. So when that is seen really, really deeply, the impermanence of all of that, all of those factors which make up a sense of self, we realize how coreless it is, how coreless all of it is. The not-self characteristic is understood through impermanence. So the Buddha gave this teaching that I just spoke about on the five um, khandhas or the five aggregates of clinging, which I just spoke about, um, sensations in the body, uh, perceptions, uh, vedana, which is the feelings, um, intentions, and consciousness. These are the five aggregates. This particular teaching the Buddha gave in the Kanda Samyutta 159 times in different ways. It was so important, this particular teaching. And reviewing uh, that over and over again in the various um, talks that I heard over the years, it really, through experience, it came into understanding of course, there, there were so many times that I heard this talk, and uh, I, didn't, I didn't quite understand it. I know some people say that, I've heard that talk already. Why should I hear it again? It's because when you hear it over and over again, sometimes you understand it in a different way. And the Buddha asked us to listen over and over again. That's why he repeated things over and over again. I remember when I probably had heard it a dozen times or more. I can't remember. I'm just um, thinking it might be a dozen times. And I finally heard it one time, this teaching on the five aggregates. It really came alive for me because I had been practicing, because I related it to my moment-to-moment practice. And it wasn't so intellectual anymore. The Buddha said that what is impermanent is suffering. What is suffering is non-self. What is non-self should be seen as it really is. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. 
When one sees this thus as it really is, with correct wisdom, one holds no more views concerning the past, concerning the present, concerning the future. When one holds no more views concerning this, there is no more obstinate grasping. The mind becomes dispassionate towards form, feeling, perception, intentions, consciousness, and it is liberated from the taints by non-clinging. So it's, a, it's an extremely important um, teaching that the Buddha gave so many times. It said that deeply understanding impermanence is really the beginning point of truly realizing the Four Noble Truths. When one, as we call it in the um, progress of insight, when one really sees the arising and passing away of um, experience, like moment to moment in the pixelated view, that's when really their practice begins. That's when really they start to see more and more deeply and have understandings, realizations of anicca on a very experiential level. That's when the place of genuine refuge we feel the place of genuine refuge in our practice when we start to really live in alignment with those understandings, with the truth of it, instead of resisting it, uh, instead of fighting it, or wanting it to be otherwise. In, um, in interviews with our own teachers, a lot of the questions would be around, or the way we report would be around um, reporting when we saw the arising or what we saw in the changing experience of something. And if we didn't say that somehow in our report, there would be questions of what arose and how did you see that arise? And we would have to note, say what, how we noticed the changing experience of it and how it went away. Did it dissolve? Did it explode? Did it like fall off a cliff? Did it um, just very kind of gently uh, disappear? So it's really important that you see it over and over and over again in your experience and um, not get so pulled out by the things of, of the world. Uh, this, this is what our practice, what we do in intensive retreat like this. This is not how we're going to go out in the world and do it. But somehow our understanding in intensive retreat connects to the world, and we start to see the world in a different way. Um, we start to see radical changes in how we see the world. It leads to a lot less clinging a lot more experience of freedom. In retreat, we soak in the experience of these three universal experiences. We soak in anicca, you know, in impermanence, just seeing it over and over again, in, in the not-self characteristic, in dukkha. Different, we, we kind of, we don't require you to report the same way that we report it to, uh, to our teachers. But we, we try to listen and read how 
you are experiencing that in your, in your reporting. We kind of suss out and we can understand how you see that in your moment-to-moment experience. And gently bring, bring it back to, you know, can you just be with what you're experiencing? If you tell a story, we say, okay, what were you experiencing then? You know, or how you were, are you experiencing it now? It, it's so, it's so, um, hmm. We can get so identified with our thoughts. It's, it's a lot of suffering getting very identified with what we think, how we think. So just knowing this bare sensations in the body, experiences of the mind, experiences of the mind, this is really important. Not getting involved, so involved in the thoughts, fueling them with more thoughts, but um, really letting us kind of fall into something deeper to see how the thoughts are changing, the process is going on. Carlos Castaneda says something good about getting caught in the internal dialogue and how different it is when we're not caught. You all know in your own ways we do get caught, you know, we think of something at home or something going on here and it spins us out. But uh, when we're not spun out, just what, what comes out of that, what comes out of that kind of emptiness of thought, uh, not, not having that fill the inner world. He says, whenever the internal dialogue stops, the world collapses and the extraordinary facets of ourselves surface, as though they had been kept heavily guarded by our words. Isn't that so? Heavily guarded by our words. And people talk about how the world, how how the world collapses, how, you know, the world seems strange, or, you know, the world isn't what I thought it was. So listening to the flow of the river, this change over and over again through the years of our life, through our moments here in retreat, can we just be with that process, see the change? If we can, then moments when we're caught up in feelings of inadequacy or frustration or that we're not good enough or anger, or something, you know, yogi mind bothering us in some way. Um, If we can really see that, we can know when something comes up, okay, this is here for the time being, just see it, just see the process of it coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. And there's some deeper wisdom there that's able to hold it, that doesn't need to get caught up in it. So, this helped me to relax and to move more easily in, in the Dhamma. In the beginning times, I would really have a hard time not being able to sit through a whole sitting or thinking that a sitting had to be really, you know, just a totally wonderful experience the whole time. And if there was 
pain or some kind of suffering in the mind that I'd be totally able to handle it and there'd be no identification with it. I mean, I would just think that the ideal would happen, ideal would happen all the time. And it took years of experience to understand it's not going to be that way, even with very experienced meditators. If you heard the conversations between us and even our senior colleagues, you know, it's, there's just more acceptance of how things are. There's less identification with, you know, the, the thought comes up that, oh, I'm not a good person. And, you know, we'd say, I don't know where that thought comes from, but it still comes up. You know, or the thought of being upset because of something someone did, it comes up and it's seen and sometimes caught in it and sometimes not. And more and more times not so caught. But we're just being able to um, understand impermanence so deeply that when something good happens and it's delightful, you know it's going to go away. And when something awful happens and there's a lot of pain, you also know that it's going to go away. It's not going to last a long time. Or if it lasts a long time, you can live with it somehow. So we notice the the weather patterns, the outer weather patterns, and we notice the weather patterns of the mind. That's how I term it to be sometimes. You know, it's just a storm. It's just some lightning in the sky. It's just a big wind. You know, the air element, the earth element, you know, it's muddy. Can't, can't quite feel like slogging through. Sometimes very painful. Um, it feels like lightning striking the whole body. I'm not trying to make a concept out of it, but it just feels like weather patterns, in, inner weather patterns very similar to the outer weather patterns, that more of a, a way of seeing it elementally, seeing the flowing onness of life, even in the mind, quite elementally. When I would fight against it, Manindra used to say, it's the law. It's the law meaning the natural arising and passing away of whatever is happening. He would use the phrase a lot, surrender to the law. You know, not like somebody's pointing a gun and you put your hands up, not that kind of surrender. But it's more like, okay, just accept it. It's happening. It's, you can't change what's happening right now, but there's a possibility of responding it to it in a way where it could change future ways of what arises and how it's handled in the future. So on an extraordinary deeper level, you start letting go. When you see this at the pixelated view, you can just be with the arising and passing away of the body, the pain in the body, the joy, the the delight that happens in the body. You can let go of expectations that it should be this way or that way. And the mind will automatically throw up one of those, throw, not, not throw up. It could do that too. 
But it could also bring up to you some kind of wise view. A lot of you have brought that up in, in kind of when you're uh, reviewing your practice. You, you say, well, you know what? This thought came up to just let it go. Uh, or this thought came up to, hey, this is not going to last. Or this thought came up like to understand, you know, these thoughts are just going by. You know, there's nothing I can do. They're uncontrollable. This is the way that we learn to read how this, this understanding of anicca or dukkha or anatta is actually happening in your own practice. Um, so all of you are noticing that in your own ways already. You're learning how to n- not hold on to the past, not get you know, glued on to an identification with it, because you're learning in the present moment that it doesn't last in the present moment, you can let go of the present just very organically. So that allows us to let go of the past very organically by letting go of the future, the present passing moments just very organically. The mind lets go of what we're holding on to, plans for the future. There's so much understanding that comes with just being with the present moment, arising and passing away. As Manindra would say over and over, let go, let go, let go. Sometimes, you know, he just can't say anything else. He's heard it all already from me, all the complaints, all the complaints about myself or the blames about others. And all he can say when I come to him is, let go, let go, let go. This is from the Sutta Nipata. Let there be nothing behind you. Leave the future to one side and grasp not what remains in the middle. You know, even the present moment is just a bubble. When we want to be present with the present moment, it's so that we can see that it really is so evanescent. It's coreless. So we stop looking for solid ground, and we get used to how it is. And it, it can be a feeling of great vulnerability. Many yogis, when they start seeing this experience of, um, of anicca, they start experiencing that deeply. The vulnerability, or the dukkha, unsatisfactoriness of life, comes more into the foreground. And one can feel very insecure during this time, even quite fearful. Um, there's a story of a scientist who, when he really understood impermanence, scientifically, by seeing how you know all the, the atoms and all the, what makes up an atom just comes and goes all the time, and there's more space between anything than any solidity at all. And even where there is any solidity, you look through that, and it just is more and more space over and over and over again. There's no solidity anywhere. It just keeps moving on. Well, this scientist was reputed to wear these huge slippers 
because he thought that he might fall through <laughs> somehow that insolidity. Or at least he runs around giving the story of that. So this impermanence, to see through this impermanence, is something that inevitably is freeing us from holding on to the past. And of course, in this present moment, we understand more deeply. It frees us from holding on to any plans we may have for the future. Of course, we do what we can to live out those plans, but without attachment to result, because all, all conditions are changing. Someone asked the Buddha um, if there was anything permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change. And this is what the Buddha said about that. He said, there is no form that is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, and that will remain the same just like eternity itself. There is no feeling, no perception, no volitional formation, no consciousness that is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, that will remain the same. Then the Blessed One took up a lump of cow dung in his hand and said to that bhikkhu, Bhikkhu, there is not even this much individual existence that is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change and that will remain the same, just like eternity itself. If there was this much individual existence that was permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, this living of the holy life for the complete destruction of suffering could not be discerned. But because there is not even this much individual existence that is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, this living of the holy life for the complete extinction of suffering can be discerned. So finally, the flowing onness of the river teaches us not to resist this truth. And it's not that we stop living our lives meaningfully. In fact, we start living our lives more meaningfully. We use our lives and our speech and our behavior more skillfully. We, with impermanence, we realize the preciousness of life, that we can't really um, uh, let anything go by without holding it as precious. So it's not that you, know, you just let go and, well, as we say in Hawaii, aloha oi, you know, goodbye. <laughs> You just, you, you hold it with love. You hold it with great compassion. The importance of being kind becomes more deeply ingrained in our hearts. And practicing deep renunciation, really deep renunciation, understanding, as uh, Suzuki Roshi says, that true renunciation isn't giving up the things of this world, but knowing that they go away then, you know, you, you, you consider them as precious, but you don't hold on. So it's all around us, this um, anicca. We can learn from every side. 
according to Sogyal Rinpoche, there would be no chance at all of getting to know death or change if it happened only once. But fortunately, life is nothing but a continuing dance of birth and death, a dance of change. Every time I hear the rush of a mountain stream or waves crashing on the shore or my own heartbeat, I hear the sound of impermanence. These changes, these small deaths, are our living links with death. They are death's pulses, death's heartbeat, prompting us to let go of all things that we cling to. And finally, I want to read to you an account of a personal experience or an impersonal experience of a nun. This was recorded in um, the Terigatha, the collection of poems of nuns who were fully enlightened. And this was a nun, Mita Kali. She was a nun who became enlightened during the time of the Buddha. And she describes a precise moment of realization characterized by her insight into impermanence, anicca. She was reputed to be a very angry and difficult, self-centered person, woman, and she heard how to practice, and she really practiced, and she changed, and eventually she became an arahant. So these are her words. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way, my passions used me, and I forgot the real point of my life. Then as I sat in my little cell, there was only terror. I thought, this is the wrong way. A fever of longing controls me. Life is short, age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before the body breaks. And as I watch the elements of the mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. The mind was completely free. The Buddha's teaching has been done. So with that, let's sit for a moment. 